Welcome to ShopCast, talking retail strategy with your host, Michael Dart. In this program, we'll spotlight the changes you need to know about in the world of retail shopping and help you plan for the future of the industry. Now, here is Michael Dart. Good morning and welcome to ShopCast. I'm Michael Dart and I'm your host. I'm a partner at AT Carney and also co-author of two books, the most recent Retail Seismic Shift, which provides a lot of the backbone of ideas which we'll be discussing during the course of this show. So feel free to get a copy. And if you have any comments or ideas or things you want to suggest based upon the book or the show, feel free to reach out to us at shopcast at atcarney.com. That's A-T-K-E-A-R-N-E-Y.com. I'm excited to uh, share today's show with you. Uh, we're going to be talking about the future of shopping. Uh, what it takes to grow in this market, and I have two great guests who are going to be offering their insights and perspectives. My first guest will be Michael Massey. Uh, He's a serial chief executive. He was CEO of Collective Brands, uh, led that organization both through a transformation in one of its core businesses at Payless Shoes, as well as the sale to Wolverine and Golden Gate Capital. Uh, Most recently, Michael uh, was part of the group led by BC Partners that took PetSmart private, And he was CEO of PetSmart uh, during the early years of that transformation and led the organization uh, at the uh, acquisition and still is the largest, I think, e-commerce acquisition of Chewy.com. And Mike will be sharing his thoughts on uh, the outlook for growth for retailers and what it takes to grow. Also have uh, Dara Parker. Dara Parker is an independent consultant, and she's been spending a lot of time thinking about what it takes to be successful in retail. And she's going to continue our conversation of her visits most recently to Manhattan, where there's a number of retail formats that are driving enormous amounts of traffic and interest and excitement and from the consumer. And I want to find out who those are and why why they're having such an impact. Before we get to the, uh, uh, the segment with my guests, I'd like to share with you a couple of perspectives that uh, I have. It's obviously been a very interesting time in retail. Uh, the big announcement, the big backdrop that we have is that Toys R Us has announced that they will be closing all of their U.S. stores, over a 1,000 stores, and obviously that impacts a lot of people, and it's disappointing to see such an iconic retailer like that where so many people have worked hard uh, to try and make it successful disappear. Uh, but it is in many ways at the intersection of a lot of the trends that we outline in retail seismic shift, a lot of the challenges that they're facing, particularly, of course, the online challenge as well. And I want to explore that a little bit more because uh, there's some optimism, there's some mood that maybe we've reached an equilibrium with online penetration a little bit and that uh, retailers who had a nice uh, uh, Christmas time period or fourth quarter feeling a little bit more buoyant. But I want to just explore a little bit about what's going on and what the numbers tell us about uh, how that outlook looks and whether or not we are going to see uh, more more companies potentially like Toys R Us facing, facing challenges and more shrinkage in terms of the real estate. Let me begin with what the financial markets are saying. Uh, the financial markets have voted and they are pretty, pretty unambiguous in terms of what they think is going to happen. If you look at Amazon, which is obviously the bellwether stock for online retailing, and you just look at the increase in their market capitalization over the last 12 months or so. That increase in market capitalization is four times greater than the total value, the total market capitalization of the top 10 dominant mall retailers. So if you add it up, Abercrombie & Fitch, American Eagle, Gap, Urban Outfitters, 
uh, Foot Locker, Coles, JCPenney, Nordstrom, Macy's, and Dillard's, the total value of those companies is about a quarter of just the increase in value that Amazon has seen over the last 12 months. A pretty dramatic picture. So Wall Street is pretty clear in terms of how they're thinking about this. They're thinking that Amazon as the online bellwether stock is going to continue to take enormous amount of share. And obviously, there are a lot of other players in and around Amazon as well. So the next question is, is this justified? Is this a reasonable way to think about what's happening? And uh, is Wall Street getting it right? Well, to answer that question, I had a look at some information on how Amazon compared to Walmart at this stage of uh, each company's evolution. So if you look at both Amazon and Walmart from the point of their IPO through to today, how much market share had they achieved in terms of retail sales and what was their trajectory? Well, that data would, interestingly enough, suggest that both companies had been on largely the same pattern of growth. So 20 years in, you would see that both companies had approximately 4% of total retail sales. Both companies, interestingly enough, at this stage, had also made a large bet on penetrating grocery. Uh, Walmart, 20 years after its IPO, was significantly expanding its neighborhood stores. And Amazon obviously has made a big bet with uh, the acquisition of Whole Foods. But uh, here's what's interesting. Uh, Walmart's basic penetration and market share of total retail sales peaked around 10, 11% has remained relatively flat since then. And while Amazon and Walmart have had the same type of growth rate up until today, Walmart's growth rate looking forward appears to be slower than what Amazon is accomplishing right now. There appears to be a separation and Amazon's growth rate is accelerating. And so that would potentially suggest that Amazon has actually more headroom than Walmart achieved. And so therefore, there's going to be even more and more uh, sales going online than Walmart at its peak had achieved as well. And so if you think about it right now, 83% of sales are still going through bricks and mortar, 17% are online in total. Uh, The rate of growth of online, even though it's got a larger base, has actually not declined. It's still accelerating. So off that bigger base, we're seeing more share going online. You put all of that together and it suggests that Toys R Us is not an outlier. It's just, again, a, a indicator, a bellwether of what is going to occur. We're going to see continued, continued challenges on bricks and mortar retail. It also suggests that there's probably a, a number of ways retailers can think about their store fleet. And uh, I've talked about this in many different ways, but let me give you just two ways to think about the stores. They can become incredibly efficient, optimized logistics machines. And that is they are uh, distribution centers, really efficient, convenient, and getting goods to the consumer. Or number two, they can become incredibly optimized showrooms where they're fun places to go to see product, et cetera. And uh, you don't necessarily have an awful lot of inventory in the stores, but they become very engaging. So those are two ways to think about it. But the backdrop is, despite uh, the optimism, despite what uh, uh, people think in terms of what occurred the last quarter here or so, we're going to see continued pressure on real estate and the retail square footage. So with that, and with that backdrop, I'd like to uh, introduce my first guest, uh, Michael Michael Massey, and uh, as I've told you, he's a CEO who's lived through a lot of these changes and challenges, and I want to get his perspectives on the continued evolution of retail and uh, how he thinks things are going to play out. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. 
Well, one thing I love to do with every guest I have on the show is to find out how did they actually get into uh, retail and what drove them to it and why do they have a passion for it. So I wonder if you could just share with us your story of uh, how it is that uh, you became a CEO in the retail industry and why you're passionate about it. Sure. Um, I, uh, I did not take the traditional path into retail. Um, I happened to be a real estate tax lawyer in St. Louis and uh, worked with a lot of great people at a law firm, but uh, I thought that maybe I needed a little more uh, challenge, and more, not necessarily challenge, but variety in my life, and I ran into a friend who happened to work at the May Department Stores Company, and they had a full-service law firm, and uh, she said, you know, I- I'm working at a great place, and it's, it's something new every day. And she said, you should go ahead and send in your resume. So I did. I wrote a letter to them, sent it in, and they brought me in for an interview, told me I, there was no job to be had, that they just wanted to interview me, so they had me in their file and talked to a bunch of people that day. And by the time I got home, uh, I saw a box on my door that said, May Department Stores Company, and in it was a job offer. And so I went to work at the May Department Stores as an attorney. And uh, it was an exciting place because I could do what I wanted. I didn't really know retail at all. I'd worked in my father's business and had been a salesman there, but not very successfully, actually. But I, you know, I got the opportunity to work in the store. I ended up being able to be in, really involved in the business. Um, I remember my first merchandising lesson from someone who became a fabulous CEO, Ken Hicks, who was CEO of uh, Foot Locker, but at that time he was uh, a senior executive in May Merchandising, and he gave a merchandising class, and I went to it. I was one of just a couple people who went, and uh, it was fascinating to me. And I remember what was him. The, uh, what was the big insight, or what was the the major learning that you took away from that interaction with Ken? Well, he, he taught us about, he, at that point, he had responsibility for uh, the candy shops along with the home store and a number of other things. And he was talking about merchandising uh, the candy store and he used the famous bar uh, candy shop as the on the first floor in the downtown store as the example. And what I, what I learned from that was it was a very defined process. And yet it had change coming at it every season. And it was a dynamic process. And you don't see that just as an average customer um, you 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 don't realize all of the decisions that had to be made, and how to how to manage those decisions through an organization. And it was incredibly interesting, and I it it spurred me to spend a lot more time in the store and working in the store. And I happened to have a client, uh, Payless Shoe Source, that you know I became especially close to, and that. Uh, opportunity for me is I got to work on the spin of, of Payless to its shareholders in 1996, 
and I was invited to go work there. And mm-hmm. uh, a gentleman, Stephen Douglas, a fabulous CEO, uh, he invited me over, and I said, well, you know, I, I want to be able to work on the business side, too, and he gave me that opportunity. So I, I went there to help establish a law department and also be involved in the business. And they gave me that opportunity. They gave me the opportunity to not only operate in the field that I understood and knew, which was law, but I got to work in the business. And at one point, I set up a contract manufacturing and wholesaling organization, uh, mm-hmm. and a, I, I was heavily involved in the international effort to join, enter into Canada, pretty much all aspects of that. And later, uh, I went ahead and set up a, uh, the opportunity to enter uh, Central America. And at that point, they said, gee, we think you need to just be in the business. And uh, that's where I learned retail uh, in, in a hands-on way. That's really interesting, Michael. And uh, when we return, I want to talk more about your international experience. We're going to take a break right now. Uh, but you're not the only guest. In fact, actually, the majority of uh, folks I've spoken to so far seem to have uh, found themselves in retail from a relatively circuitous route. And uh, it's interesting, but then obviously got gripped by it. But let's take a break now, and then let's come back and talk a little bit about how retailers can think about growing. And uh, my first topic is going to build on your international experience. So uh, I'm Michael Dart. You're listening to Shopcast, and uh, we will be back with Michael Massey after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Carney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit ATCarney.com to find out more. We all hear about information security, identity, and privacy threats. The more technology becomes part of our lives, with more data created to provide insights about our lives, the more concerned we need to be. That's why it's important to tune in to Data Security and Privacy with The Privacy Professor. Host Rebecca Harold is an internationally recognized expert in these areas. Rebecca and her guests will let you know how to keep your business and personal data safe. Listen live every Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers 250. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program. Hello, I'm Michael Dart, and welcome back to ShopCast. I'm here with uh, Michael Massey, and we're now going to start discussing 
how retailers can think about growing given all of the challenges that they're facing. And Michael, one of the areas I know you've spent quite a bit of time thinking about and exploring uh, because you think it's an opportunity for retailers is going international and specifically into uh, Central and South America, I believe, are areas that you focused on. And I was curious um, if you think that that is a great opportunity for retailers and why. Well, you know, it depends on the on the product and the and the service um, and the retail service. But I believe emerging markets are real opportunities. They certainly were for Payless Shoe Source. Um, they tend to be growing markets, uh, and and a rising tide does lift all boats. Um, I believe there are uh, competition generally is underdeveloped in those markets and very fragmented. And I look at the world when, you know, of retail, and I personally believe the biggest risk is competitive risk. Um, you can also look at those markets today, and for brick-and-mortar retails, because e-commerce is much less um, penetrated in those markets, for them it's a place to raise sales and grow, um, again, with effectively less competition. So I, I tend to like them. I mean, my... my uh, my belief is that there are areas where it's also incredibly open uh, to the consumer because there there are certain things about whether it's uh, products or, or retailers that are particularly validating to the emerging market consumer, and I think that gives tremendous advantage. And finally, mm-hmm. from the from the retail standpoint, uh, the fixed costs are lower. So if you're going to have real estate, uh, both labor and and uh, rents tend to be a lower percentage of sales, uh, in my experience, than uh, than first world markets. Interesting. So are there, you know, a couple of questions really. Are there particular countries that you think that retailers should be exploring? And then secondly, are there particular categories of products or, or things that you think really appeal uh, to folks in those markets that, you know, currently there could be a lot of folks in the United States who aren't necessarily thinking about that? Well, I think, I think the areas that, uh, certainly in, in the, the countries, I'm a big proponent of uh, those countries in Latin, in Latin America that are open to commerce, um, certainly Central America is a great region, the Northern Cone. I, I, I believe uh, Chile, Peru are, are great markets, um, but especially the Northern Cone, Colombia, Ecuador, and Central America, as well as Mexico, all be great markets. It's... Uh, so from that standpoint, I like Latin America. I also like Southeast Asia. Philippines is a great market. Um, I think Vietnam can be a great market. A number of, of, of markets that it's possible to operate in and do really well as either a European or U.S. Uh, company. And I'd also say when it comes to, to the particular type of business, because it was a, uh, in my mind, overpriced. Uh, the market was fragmented, and there weren't any super strong competitors. And it's changing over time, 
but uh, Payless entered the market at the right time in that. And I, I would say the, the key element, though, was that, you know, for example, Payless was validated with the consumer. In fact, going into a Payless store was validated for the consumer, and essentially that's a lot of the reason why people act to be validated. And I think that's potentially true uh, with other areas. I'd say health and safety, um, trend and beauty are things that are easily extendable to those markets. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I've, I've looked at optical, and I think that's actually a, a great opportunity. But there are a lot of opportunities uh, for U.S. and European retailers to expand into, into those markets. Now, the history seems to be a lot of companies, when they've looked at those opportunities, for whatever reason, haven't necessarily been that successful. And I'm curious if, based upon your experience, there's any lessons learned or things that you'd say you need to be thinking about to be successful, whether or not that's in you know, Central or South America or the Philippines or Asia, that you would highlight that really will drive success for somebody when they explore these opportunities? Well, it comes down to making sure that what your offer is is what customer wants and, and actually um, validates the customer. Um, mm-hmm. I, think, I think one of the, the skills that's helped me in international retail and all retail and virtually all business is the ability to put myself in someone else's shoes. And when you, when you shop and you go through life as the customer, which I spent a lot of time in Central America learning and understanding, I mm-hmm. realized that, for example, I, the, the Latin American customer, the Central American customer specifically, and in the Northern Cone, many of them couldn't go shop in the United States. It was something they aspired to. And they, they might know of somebody who could shop in the United States and they aspired to be that person. Mm-hmm. And we did a lot of work on that, and we understood that. So what we had to deliver was a truly U.S. experience within their reach. So when they walked in the door, they were absolutely validated that mm-hmm. they, they could be that person. And so we exaggerated some things. We actually kept the air conditioning lower. We carpeted our stores. No one else was carpeted. And I think the, the thing that a lot of people do um, which ends up taking them off course is they try to be like everybody else in the market instead of finding out what's going to validate people in the market. Is it different? Does it offer a value proposition? And do you have it? Can you offer it? And if you do, then that market's one that you can get into. And, uh, you know, I, I, I believe there are a lot of concepts in the U.S. that can grow for that reason outside of the United States. They just have to find the right ones. That's interesting because obviously uh, luxury brands have been incredibly successful at doing that, particularly in Asia. Uh, but your argument is you believe that even more uh, for want of a better expression, middle market brands could actually be very successful in a lot of these marketplaces? Well, you know, as long as they deliver that, that validation, mm-hmm. there's no name and 
there's no real difference in the experience in anything else. But I think in certain areas, whether it's food, beauty, uh, health, uh, I think there's a, there's a tremendous advantage where you can validate being a U.S. or European brand. You know, uh, I, yeah, and, and quick question on that, and you think that's still true given all of the political dynamics that are taking place right now, that people are still aspiring to American brands and, and that that is something that should be exploited by a lot of these companies in these, uh, in these markets? You, you know, Michael, I'm not really sure politics has anything to do with it. Uh, for example, uh, the U.S. is viewed as a, as a I, I, through research I've I've done in the past is viewed as a country that actually regulates its its products well, and so generally products coming from the United States are viewed as safe um, mm-hmm. in Latin America and as well as in China and other places. And I think there's there's an opportunity, for example, to take that as a validating circumstances. For example, if you're going to buy something for your child and it has related to safety. Let's say it's, I'll use the concept of eyeglasses. You know if a consumer there will likely extend a greater level of, of validation to those products and those services and yep. be proud to say that they got something from the U.S. for their child even though they may have had to spend a little more, uh, because it, it, again, is validating them as a parent. Yeah. And you think the purchasing power in these markets, obviously they've been uh, uh, up and down a little bit in some of these different economies, but the purchasing power is there for uh, for U.S. goods. I mean, obviously, you've got Julian Iwer, Warby Parker, who's trying to redefine the cost structure of that, that uh, marketplace uh, to make it accessible here, but it could be made accessible in those markets as well as other products, you think? I, I think absolutely. Um, a lot of, when you go down and actually do market studies in many of these countries, uh, a number, a lot of times the prices are actually higher than what they would be in the United States. Mm-hmm. And you know, there can be a lot of reasons for that, duties, etc., that can raise cost. Um, but w- what I have seen, my experience and they generally aren't cheaper, and the purchasing power and the purchasing power parity is enough to buy U.S. goods because they spend a, a, the consumers are spend a larger portion of their income on those goods. There are many things they won't spend money on that they spend money on in the United in, that consumers spend money on in the United States. It's a choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going to take another break now, Michael. So uh, when when we return, I'd love to go down. Two other potential, uh, one other growth vector and then one other requirement for retailers. And the growth vector is how to think about playing in e-commerce. And then the second one is what it takes to uh, uh, to lead a transformation and the organizational requirements of, of meeting the challenges today. So we'll take a short break and come back. But uh, very interesting perspective on uh, the fact that there is growth outside of the United States and there's a lot of brands, products and capabilities here that can be taken to those markets. So um, thank you for that. And uh, we'll be back soon. You're listening to uh, Shopcast and I'm Michael Dart and I'm here with my guest, Michael Massey, and we'll return after a short break.
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers dash 250. Does your organization lack proper leadership? We're not necessarily talking about experience, but about how to face the changing dynamic of leadership today. Sometimes the people we lead know more. Old ways don't work anymore, and the comfort zone just becomes too easy. Listen for Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. We'll show you how you can adapt and develop your leadership skills to today's workplace. Every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Carney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit atcarney.com to find out more. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program. Hello, I'm Michael Dart, and welcome back to ShopCast. I'm uh, here with Michael Massey, and we're talking about how to grow in this challenging environment, and uh, and also we're going to be spending a little bit of time talking about the organizational requirements to, uh, uh, to meet the challenges that are occurring in the retail market. We just discussed uh, interesting opportunities in the international market and how U.S. retailers and brands can think about exploiting and exploring those opportunities. Uh, uh, Michael, interestingly enough, one thing that uh, uh, I should have mentioned to you is that I believe that uh, Asina with the Justice brand has actually been uh, enacting that strategy and is having a lot of traction in places like Peru, where apparently young people are flocking to those stores. So uh, interesting observations. But switching gears, what I'd love to do then is uh, I want to get your views on e-commerce. Obviously, at the beginning of the show, I outlined the fact that Amazon is continuing to accelerate its growth uh, faster than Walmart was at this stage. There's a lot of verticals that they could still penetrate. I'm sure uh, you're aware of uh, a number of those. Uh, They've just got Whole Foods now under their wing, so there's a lot of uh, momentum there. And obviously, there's a number of other big uh, online players as well. So I guess my first question to you is, as you think about e-commerce and how it's going to play out in the retail landscape, uh, what do you think is the trajectory we're on, and uh, is Amazon going to be the uh, the big big winner here? Well, it's, uh, the last part I'll, I'll 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 leave open. I I think I'd you know what I would focus on, what I think are the two main trends and the the things that that you if you're going to be a retailer day. That has to be an element of of reaching the consumer, and there are two elements, two two main themes that are driving, in my mind, e-commerce today, and that is being frictionless and becoming more frictionless and becoming ever more personalized. And you know, I think the two areas where where I see huge change in the future 
that retailers are going to have to address. Uh, the first is delivery. And, you know, same-day delivery is, in my mind, is going to be where it's at, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's scheduled or immediate. People, people's expectations keep uh, increasing about the immediacy of their actions and their satisfaction. And yep. you know, I think this is where, you know, you have Instacart and others, but I think in, in my mind, there, you know, a, a number of the real uh, interesting areas are the crowdsourced delivery. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, uh, I've seen Delive. Uh, there's software out there that retailers can use themselves to create their own uh, kind of crowdsourced delivery, which is, I think, is a software bring. Um, and, and I think that, because it reduces the actual cost tremendously uh, or will over time as those technologies grow, I think being able to deliver uh, same day, and to do that, you have to have a number of locations to deliver from and build the algorithms and have a, a good inventory accuracy, physical inventory accuracy. Mm-hmm. I think if you do those things, those are going to be the winners. I, I, I think that's a key one. And just, just for, for those folks, when you say crowdsourcing, you're talking about an Uber-like model where uh, people aren't employees, but they, they're logged on, they're, they're checked, and then they go and pick up the goods for you and deliver it to your house or wherever you want it to be done, but they're not employees of these companies. They're just uh, independent contractors doing that who get the order, and, and the payment method is all done through the software. Is that, is that how to think about that, just to, yes. yeah, for crowdsourcing? Yes, although, interestingly enough, uh, some of this software, like I think it's the Bring software, um, I know there's software out there that theoretically a retailer could have a relationship with a specified number of, of folks and they could be driving around and they might be working for Uber one day, but you know, on one ride they might be working for uh, the retailer on another, day, on another ride. Uh, for a delivery, so, but but essentially, I one would think it would be third parties, right, right. And so this gets to what I said up front about uh, the store really becoming this incredible optimized logistics machine, and this is just one component of that, isn't it? In in the future, for a lot of retailers, is to use that uh, physical infrastructure, the distribution points, the stores, uh, with devices or partners like. Uh, like the ones you've mentioned, in order to get that last mile delivery low cost and really quickly to the consumer. Yeah, and I, and I think being highly efficient has always been a key attribute of a good retailer, and I don't think yep. that changes in the e-commerce space at all. Mm-hmm. I would also say that the other area of frictionless uh, theme that I think is important is I believe there's a I, I see that there will be a movement away from websites. Um, you know, already on, on retailers' Instagram pages and other things, there are APIs that you can use to plug back into the website, but you never really, once you click on something on the Instagram site or others, you can buy right there. You never go to the website. And I believe content sites are going to be key to 
to e-commerce future. I, I, I see a diffusion of retail commerce. Um, there's no reason in the future that, you know, Vogue or Mary Claire, you know, they can't negotiate with a series of retailers so that when something is shown on their site, you can click on it and buy it and actually maybe have a choice of retailers, and they would get a portion of that. I mean, I, I see that happening in the future. Why shouldn't Consumer Reports be able to do that or other informational sites? Uh, I, I think that diffusion of retail on, on the Internet is going to be something that's really, really interesting, and it's, it, it could be, and my own personal belief is the content owners are going to become ever more powerful in, in retail. So would you, would you say then if you were a retailer or a major brand that you would actually, uh, as a key strategic thrust, be partnering with these content sites, developing content, and streamlining and working with them to, to make the purchasing seamless, easy for the consumer versus investing potentially increasingly on your own website and your own app because they're going to become increasingly redundant? Well, I think it's, it, yes, I, I do see that, um, in part because I, there's, there's more validation potentially from a content site than looking at a website. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there's, again, there's more reason to feel gratified uh, right. by, you know, if you, if you see the, the star in a particular outfit and you want to click on that and buy that then because you want to be like them and feel right. that and, and get that feeling, boy, I think that's really powerful. Yeah, yeah. And this, this takes me to um, the last topic I want your thoughts on here as well because navigating that dynamic, that shift, everything's moving so fast. I heard a quote the other day that said, um, our industry is moving at a pace it's never moved before. It's changing faster than ever before. But the retailers and the companies are moving probably as slowly as they've ever moved. I don't know if that's totally true, but, but it was interesting. And uh, given, given the shifting dynamics, given how fast e-commerce can change and all of these things, curious, what do you think are the key success factors for retailers to lead a transformation and, and what it takes to, to be successful? Well, you, you know, I, and I think it's whether it's a transformation related to e-commerce and the change in the marketplace or to brick and mortar. I don't think it's any different. Um, I think first uh, there are a couple things. One, you have to know you have to have data. You have to know who your customer is or who the customer you want is, where are they going, and why, and, and what validates them. And then secondly, I I think you have to fear incrementality. You have to be willing to go to where they're going to be, not where they are right now. And that takes a lot of data to predict where that's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then, then the other things, the other elements of it are, are, are the same as, as they were 30 years ago. You have to do it quickly. Speed is incredibly important. You have to have the right team. The team has to be involved in creating the actual data and interpreting it. You can't. I, I don't believe you can use an outside party to give you a developed 
uh, answer to all of this. You have to have uh, a senior management team help develop that, potentially with an outside third party. And then they have to deliver the action plan to go execute it. And then all the same things are true. You have to track it. You have to make sure it's executed. And it has to be done quickly. I, I, you know, I, I look back on my Payless experience, which that wasn't related to e-commerce, but I think it all holds true. You know, we had to get the data. We had to come up with the strategy. We had to come up with the actions we were going to take. And we had to do it really fast. Right. And we did it in three quarters, and we had the best quarter in, I don't know, 25 quarters in, in, by the fourth quarter of our changes, of our transformation. And uh, I, I've got to say, that wouldn't have happened unless we had moved incredibly quickly and put together the team we believed would deliver it. And do you think that today that requires a different talent base than traditional retailers or not? I mean, particularly on the data part, I, I guess one of the big challenges is can you find people you know, who work for retailers who can really create, manipulate, and understand all of the data? Well, it, it, you know, that depends. Certainly the, the market review, it, it generally uh, you need to work with outside folks to help put together the Internet surveys, the other surveys across uh, the market to determine what consumers want. Within, your, within, you know, a lot of retailers today have huge databases, tremendous amounts of data, there, what I found in dealing with that big data internally, uh, you have to look at, it, it isn't the business school graduate you, you hire, you have to hire the doctorate professor, mm-hmm. and, you know, to get those people in, uh, you know, it's not, not inexpensive, but you have to have the statistical ability, analysis ability, which is not someone from a business school, it's someone who truly is an expert, and you have to bring those people in. Wow, interesting, interesting. From the outside looking in, um, is there a retailer you think that's done a really good job over the last uh, you know, few years on transforming themselves that uh, as you've wandered stores and from your own personal experience you'd love to, uh, to call out that seems to be making uh, this transition? Well, I would say from the outside looking in, and I, I you know, only as a customer, but, but watching them, I would say Williams Sonoma, for me, has, seems to do a tremendous job. Um, mm-hmm. I know they've been able to shift a tremendous amount of their sales to online, but but just how they integrate, it, they seem to really have achieved being an omnichannel retailer, and yeah. I think they're incredibly well positioned to take advantage of the changes. I and, and I. I think they keep changing. They seem to change really fast. And, and I look at that, and I think that's incredibly impressive. Wow. Well, that's, that's great. So, well, Michael, I want to say thank you so much for joining uh, me today and being on the show and sharing your perspectives and insights on, on the challenges that retailers are facing and how to think about growth. And uh, uh, we'll be taking a short break now on Shopcast and returning with our next guest, Dara Parker. But, Michael, thank you. Thank you so much. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Carney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit atcarney.com to find out more. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. With co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass, Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers dash 250. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to ShopCast. I'm Michael Dart, and uh, my next guest is Dara Parker. Dara, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back, Michael. Yeah, we, uh, well, we left you uh, last time we were talking, uh, touring Manhattan, and a number of people commented and we uh, I uh, had a few folks writing in that you left them with this wonderful description of the trampoline. And then we had to end the segment. So if it's okay with you, I'd love to pick up on what were you talking about shopping in stores in uh, downtown Manhattan and suddenly coming across a trampoline? So I was on the prowl for interesting and fun retail concepts um, in New York, uh, mainly downtown, Soho, Village, um, Nolita. And I did happen upon a trampoline um, that was within the Outdoor Voices store. Um, Outdoor Voices is, they say, technical apparel uh, for recreation. And it's you know, essentially playing in the athleisure space. Um, but they mm-hmm. are really just trying to help people be more active on a daily basis. And the trampoline was there not to entertain children, um, but rather to help women road test a sports bra by jumping on it. Um, and to me, that really just signaled what I saw in a lot of these really fun stores about brands that really want to delight a customer, really want that customer to feel like she's getting something of great value. Now, were people on the trampoline and actually testing this? I did not see anyone actually. <laughs> I did not see anyone actually on the trampoline, um, but we were talking to the salespeople who were incredibly energetic and well-versed in product knowledge, which is another key trend um, that I saw yeah. on, on these store visits. Um, and it's, they were very engaged. They were excited to tell us about the trampoline. Um, and it really what made for an incredibly authentic connection uh, between the brands, the people in the store representing them, and the consumers. Now, athleisure is a very competitive space. So did, did you feel that they somehow had carved out a niche that – was different and distinct than a lot of the other players from Lululemon to Athleta and and others who've been really trying to be aggressive in that space? I do. I think they've done a really good job of creating a community um, online. And this is a digitally native brand, one Uh that started online um, and they manufacture their own product. 
Um, and they've really created a community around what they say, what they call doing things. Um, so they do have events, um, jogging clubs or yoga classes. Um, but they've, they've made exercise easy and fun and brought it back to being more about community. Um, and that really capitalizes on the millennial trend towards valuing experiences. Um, you look at the right. rise in group fitness classes, um, and you'll see a lot of outdoor voices there, um, but you'll also see it just walking the streets in Manhattan. Now, one thing which I found when I've gone into a lot of these stores that do things like put a trampoline in, in there is that historically they've kept the same retail layout and design as a traditional store and then just put in new fixtures and new things without really thinking about changing the environment. Are you seeing innovation on store design that's doing something different around all of this or, or not? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, Allbirds actually is a great example of that. Um, Allbirds sells comfortable shoes made out of wool for the entire family. Um, and these yeah. shoes, I mean, they are all about comfort. They are um, they're super, super comfortable. They're washable. Um, and when you walk and into this their is a store, digitally native, this is a digitally native brand as well, right? They, they've started off online is. and now and moved on to stores as well. Okay, yeah. Yes. So and the rumor has it that their Manhattan store is doing upwards of ten thousand dollars a square foot. So they've moved into retail very effectively. Wow! Um, wow! Could you give a benchmark of what a typical store might do, just so people understand how big ten thousand per square foot is? Oh, in the hundreds. I mean, it really, really depends on where the store is located. Um, yeah. But even in Soho, you know, and especially with larger um, footprints, um, the sales per square foot tend to be lower. Um, so That's incredible a for a footwear space. company, isn't it? That's just incredible. It really is. It really is when the price point for these shoes is $95. Mm-hmm. And so what have they so, done in the store design that you found so compelling? So everything um, is upholstered. So they've got a, a setup that almost looks like a bar, and it's fully upholstered, and they're upholstered ottomans, and just everything about it feels really comfortable. And mm-hmm. customers can take an ottoman and sort of put, um, you know, move up to the bar, and salespeople are behind the bar helping to provide the right sizes and colors of the shoes. Um, but just everything about it is really relaxed and comfortable and reflects the brand's core ethos. Right, right. Last time we also spoke about beauty stores as well, and I'm curious what uh, what other things you saw in beauty that you would uh, call out. That's obviously a very hot sector right now, and uh, it seems to be a lot of investment going in in creating these in-store experiences there. Anything you'd like to highlight and call out? I did have such great experiences with beauty stores, um, and especially they're really capitalizing on trends towards discovery, towards play, um, and Sephora does a good job of this on sort of the bigger, more established brand front. But brands, I talked last time about Glossier, um, brands like Decium and Hourglass are also doing a really good job of making the consumer experience be about trying on product and interacting with it. Um, I also found that the employees in these stores were so highly knowledgeable and energetic and excited to be there, which is a really stark contrast with you know, traditional retail employees where there's a really high turnover rate. Um, it's you know often a a low-paying job, and you can go through, I think, typical turnover rates in retail can be, you know, in the couple of months range. Um, so yeah. the service element here really stood out. So let me, you know, wrap this up. Last question to you. If you're the CEO of Macy's, JCPenney, Coles, any of the large department stores, any of the other large retailers, what are the lessons learned from your research into the hot and upcoming brands and retailers? What, what would you say they have to be thinking about? 
think they have to be making about focus and about fun. Um, you're not going to beat um, Amazon at being fast and convenient and transactional. But what these stores are doing really well is engaging with consumers, building a relationship, making shopping fun. Um, and that's something, um, you know, that I think everyone should sort of take to heart a little bit and really get to know their customer and think about what motivates and excites the customer and deliver on that in a seamless way. You know, I love that because uh, the way I think about it, uh, the thought that you've triggered in my mind is it's almost an equation you'd put on a, a whiteboard for every retailer that says experience has to be greater than convenience. And so the in-store experience has to be so compelling that it dominates the convenience of all of the uh, all of the other alternatives that are obviously popping up everywhere. And it seems like there's a bunch of folks in uh, in Manhattan who are actually on that path. So, so Dara, I, I want to say thank you, thank you again. And uh, if uh, um, you have time and the appetite, maybe as a, a series unfolds here, it'd be great to have you back as another guest again. Thank you. I'd enjoy that. That's great. Well. To wrap up this uh, week's radio show, um, I just want to give you a sense of what we're going to be talking about next week. I was in Las Vegas with 8,000 other people at Shop Talk this week, and on next week's podcast and show, we'll be discussing everything we learned at Shop Talk. So look forward to that. And again, thank you for joining us on Shopcast. Thank you for listening to Shopcast, talking retail strategy. Please join host Michael Dart for another edition of the program next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And check out past episodes at any time on demand. We hope you enjoy your week.